Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, why did Boris Johnson have to sack some of his closest supporters? UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson had a reputation for standing by his political allies, even when they were in deep trouble. There was former adviser Dominic Cummings. He was allowed to keep his job despite a huge controversy over his breaches of Covid rules. I've concluded that in travelling to find the right kind of childcare, I think he followed the instincts of every father and every parent. Johnson eventually did sack Cummings, but only when they fell out. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, he was also caught breaking Covid rules while having an affair with an advisor. The Prime Minister has accepted Health Secretary Matt Hancock's apology for breaching social distancing guidelines. Johnson only bowed to the pressure to sack Hancock when the scandal dragged on for days. So it was something of a surprise when last week Johnson ruthlessly sacked several cabinet ministers, including some of his closest allies, people who'd helped put him in power. Boris Johnson continues the biggest shake-up of his team since he entered Downing Street after the sackings and emotions in his cabinet call. Dennis Daunton, I wanted to talk to you about everything that's been going on in UK politics recently, why Johnson has done this now and what it tells us about the time that lies ahead. The reshuffle came after a very busy and controversial period in UK politics. Can you remind us about the events that led up to the reshuffle last week? Well, before the summer break, so in July, which is always a kind of a busy time politically at Westminster because before everybody goes away, there tend to be lots of parties, there's lots of plotting, people are getting too hot, they're drinking too much warm Prosecco, as they say, and they start to have a little bit of political trouble going on. And this year, on the 19th of July, Boris Johnson decided he was going to uh, have Freedom Day, which meant that practically all legal restrictions connected with coronavirus went. So you don't have to wear a mask anywhere. There's no requirement to show any kind of vaccine certification, nothing like that. So that happened on the 19th. But it was a bit of a damn squib because at just the time that it happened, Boris Johnson and the health secretary and a number of other senior ministers were pinged by the NHS app to to be told that they had been in close contact with somebody with coronavirus and they had to self-isolate. So the self-isolation rule hadn't actually gone at that stage. So So there was a kind of a certain anxiety as to whether this experiment of opening everything up was going to work. In fact, it worked out okay, certainly in the first few weeks, because the numbers actually started to go down and you didn't have this enormous kind of spike that they expected. So that was the big worry. And then uh, around that time, he had planned to reshuffle his cabinet. But that, again, he couldn't do because he was self-isolating. And so the summer kind of came and went. And then, uh, you know, they all went off on their holidays. Some of them went off to Crete, like Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary at the time. And while he was on holidays, the Taliban started to march into the main cities of Afghanistan. And he was still on the beach when they were marching into Kabul. Mr. Speaker, the Foreign Secretary shouts now, but he stayed on holiday while our mission in Afghanistan was disintegrating. So he took a lot of flack for over the fact that you didn't have much preparation. The whole thing, the, what the Americans did, took everybody by surprise. And there was this scramble to get people out of Afghanistan. You cannot coordinate an international response from the beach. So the government looked pretty bad and Raab took the fall. And so that's how we kind of ended up uh, at the end of, of August as we came into September when Parliament came back. 
So there was COVID, there was Afghanistan, and then there was a tax increase added to the mix as well. Is that right? Yeah. Boris Johnson had promised when he came into uh, Downing Street in 2019 that he was going to sort out what they call social care, which is really to do with old age care. So how you're going to take care of yourself and if you have to go into a nursing home or if you need help. And obviously in Ireland, we have this fair deal scheme, which... uh, I think people probably think it is a reasonably fair deal because it doesn't actually take a portion of the value of your house until after you're dead. And so it's your your heirs and successors that might suffer a bit. What he decided to do was that he was going to protect the value of people's houses and he was going to say you're never going to have to sell your house because the way things happen here is that above a certain amount you, know, you basically will just have to keep paying for it and if that means that you have a house you potentially have to sell it. And so uh, he said that he was going to protect them in this way and the way he would do it would be that uh, there would be a cap of £83,000 that uh, above that in your lifetime you would never have to spend more than that on social care. And he was going to fund it by increasing national insurance contributions by 1%. Uh, But that's actually really 2% because the employer pays 1% and you pay 1%. It was a controversial thing for two reasons. One was because everybody who works, even the poorest people, they pay national insurance contributions. Whereas the people who are going to benefit most from this cap on the social care cost are the people who might have a big house which they want to pass on to their kids and they want to spare their children the indignity of a small inheritance. And so that was one controversial thing. It's unfair. The other controversial part of it was that uh, it goes against the conservative basic instincts that you don't put up taxes. And the third problem was that he promised in his manifesto that he wasn't going to put up income tax or national insurance. And so it was a, a breach of a tax pledge. And he then broke another one where he had said that he had promised this so-called triple lock on pensions. The pensions go up either the uh, rate of inflation or 2.5% or the, uh, the rate of increase in wages, whichever is the highest. And there was a big spike in wages uh, because of the pandemic. And that meant that the pensioners would have got about 8% extra this year. And so they decided they're going to break that promise for this year anyway and bring that down. So there were two broken promise, manifesto promises. It looked as if that could be difficult. But in fact, he did manage to get through, get that through Parliament. And one of the reasons he got it through Parliament was because he was hanging over every, the, everybody in the parliamentary party the prospect of a cabinet reshuffle. And so your moment might come if you keep your nose clean. And so they did. And with all that going on, did Boris Johnson manage to retain the support of the people who voted Conservative in the last general election? Where the opinion polls are concerned, you've seen he had this big sort of vaccine bounce because Britain rolled out its vaccines very fast and earlier than most other countries. The government benefited from that. And at the same time, Labour under Keir Starmer seemed to be, uh, you know, not quite getting its act together. And so uh, he had a big bounce in the polls. And you'd seen for a number of months that poll lead starting to shrink. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was one poll, the first in 160 or thereabouts, which showed... Labour actually just slightly ahead. So the poll gap has narrowed and there's no question but his personal popularity has diminished over the last few months and that's partly just the effect of the vaccine wearing off but it's also just uh, generally a sense of kind of drift. Now the big news this week has been uh, his cabinet reshuffle and that saw some big names demoted or dumped uh, and some other people promoted. Who were the winners and who were the losers in the reshuffle? 
Well, the biggest losers really were three cabinet ministers who were sacked and altogether sacked. The education secretary, uh, Gavin Williamson, who was generally regarded as utterly useless at his job. Just over a year later, they got what they wanted. The education secretary at the centre of last year's exams fiasco was sacked by the prime minister... Uh, he had previously been Defence Secretary. He was sacked from that too. He was equally useless in that. But he had been a chief whip and he was a key figure in Boris Johnson's success in winning the Conservative Party leadership. And people were a little bit nervous of him. The expectation had been that Boris would move him out of education, but that he wouldn't uh, actually move him out of the Cabinet completely because he'd be afraid he'd start plotting on the back benches. But he just sacked him. Second was Robert Jenrick, who was the Housing Secretary, and he had got himself into all kinds of trouble with links with developers. I knew nothing of the donation that was made and would never have allowed it to influence my decision even if I had known about the donation. Various other kind of slightly dodgy dealings and the fact that one of his jobs was to try to introduce this planning reform which would make it easier to build houses. Uh, Boris Johnson had promised to build 300,000 houses a year and this ran up against huge problems in Conservative constituencies so he was sacked as well. And then this guy Robert Buckland who was the Justice Secretary was sacked really for no reason at all. He had done nothing wrong but he was, uh, Boris Johnson needed his job to give to Dominic Raab, who was the Foreign Secretary, who was the other big loser of the thing, because he was moved out of uh, the Foreign Office, and he felt that was unfair, that he was being blamed for everybody's failure in Afghanistan. And so he was given this job as Justice Secretary, and then as a consolation prize, he was also named Deputy Prime Minister, which doesn't mean anything at all. And so he's another big loser, and everybody thinks he's on his way down. Well, the Prime Minister has put in place a strong and united team uh, which is going to deliver for the United Kingdom. The big winner is Liz Truss, who took his job in the Foreign Office as Foreign Secretary. She was uh, Trade Secretary, and she's actually been a Cabinet Minister since David Cameron's day. And she's had her kind of ups and downs, but she's somebody who kind of shares Boris Johnson's kind of cheerful boosterish kind of style. And so she's been signing all these trade deals uh, post-Brexit, many of which are just kind of carbon copies of the trade deal that Britain would have had with these countries as a member of the European Union. But still, she uh, you know, put, was putting a very brave face on it and celebrating you know, global Britain. And so I think the idea is that she's going to do something similar in the Foreign Office. So she was also a big winner. And was the scale of the reshuffle a surprise? Yeah, I mean, I think the two things that were surprising. One was the brutality of the way in which he sacked these people. And I think that was something that uh, was effective from his point of view because it made everything look quite decisive. And then the only little bit of a wobble was with Dominic Raab, uh, you know, throwing his toys out of the pram for about 40 minutes. But then he eventually did knuckle under and he accepted what was offered to him. So I think there's certainly the decisiveness of it. And also it was quite comprehensive. You know, an awful lot of the big uh, jobs have been moved around. The other big appointment was Michael Gove, who was Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which is sort of Cabinet Office Minister, which means he's got a sort of a, he kind of coordinates government. He's a finger in every pie. He's one of the people who kind of in government gets things done. 
And so he's now gone to housing. But his housing department also includes local government. It includes the union, keeping the United Kingdom together. It includes elections. And it also includes implementing Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda. Now, nobody understands what levelling up means, least of all Boris Johnson himself. And he made a big speech earlier this year where he was describing what it was and still nobody understood what he was talking about. But basically what it seems to mean is you push money from the richer parts of the country up to the poorer parts, but specifically to the poorer parts that swung from Labour to the Conservatives in the last election and that Boris Johnson needs to keep. And so he, Michael Gove, is going to have the task of making that a reality and making sure also that it works in terms of winning the election. So do you think by moving all the pieces around the chessboard in the fashion that he has, do you think that strengthened Boris Johnson's hand or is all the chopping and changing going to be perceived as weakness? I think at the moment it's not perceived as weakness. And I think there's a sense that this is the team. He, you know, on Friday morning, he had the, his new cabinet met and he said to them, this is a kind of a halftime pep talk. And so uh, he gave the impression that this was the team that now that COVID was out of the way and Brexit is kind of done, that you now get on to the important business of governing, of making sure that you're making a difference. It's all about delivering the promises of the manifesto and that this would be the team that would kind of lead them into the next election, whenever that happens to be. And so I think at the moment, because it looked decisive, because there were no slips, then the, all the kind of talk of Boris's government being in drift would probably go away for a while. But it'll probably come back because that's the kind of Prime Minister he is. Coming up, the challenges facing Johnson as he plans to win the next general election. Britain seems to have this constant yearning for the glory days, as they might see them. And that's been very evident of late. There's talk about replacing the Europe-wide CE mark with a crown on pint glasses, uh, replacing the metric system on packaging with pounds and ounces. There's talk about making television more recognisably British, maybe making more Only Fools and Horses or Minder style programmes. And then there was, of course, the convulsions that Britain um, found itself wrapped up in over the whole taking of the knee thing during Euro 2020. Um, Sometimes it seems like it's having this eternal identity crisis when we look at it from over here. Is that how it's perceived in the UK? I don't think it's a national identity crisis. I think what you have is little culture wars or culture skirmishes going on at the edges. And part of this is to do with the uh, the group of people that backed Labour for many years and then they uh, started to vote for people like UKIP and then they voted leave in the Brexit referendum and then they voted for the Conservative Party. And Labour needs to get some of these people back or some people like them back, and the Conservatives need to hold them. And in the British electoral system, the first-past-the-post system, which is rather like the American system, uh, it kind of turns pluralities into majorities. What you often find is that both parties are fighting over a little sliver of people. And so in the United States, it would have been some of these white older working class men in the Rust Belt. And in the same way, you've got a similar kind of demographic who the parties are fighting over in uh, in Britain. And, you know, and some of that, of the, you know, the, the things you were talking about in terms of imperial measures, the crown on the pint glass, these things don't really matter to most people. 
but they're the kind of things that excite some people and the, you know and these people often are quite passionate about the things that you know that get them going and so again most of the people like you know increasingly like everywhere else uh, you know fewer and fewer people are watching linear television anyway they're you know it, it doesn't really matter what's on at eight o'clock because you're watching something that was on somewhere else and so in that sense whether minder or only fools and horses is on doesn't really really matter what matters more though for some people, and again it's a particular group of people, is this whole question of British values. Is the BBC too left-wing? Is the BBC anti-Brexit? Is it? Does it represent metropolitan liberal values that don't reflect the values of some of these more you know, provincial towns and older people? And again, I think though, if you talk about these places, you know, in the so-called Red Wall, uh, you know, which tipped over from conservative, from Labour to Conservative. There are, even within that, there are, say, two generations of people. There are the older people, many of them over 70, who are really very socially conservative and they're not going to change. And they're certainly never going back to Labour. But then there's another younger group of people who are more socially aspirational. And these are people who have got uh, you know, they live in former industrialized places, but the work they do is entirely different. They might work in logistics centers and they can afford to have quite a nice life. And so in a way, those people are up for grabs and those people are not necessarily hugely turned on by the culture wars. Having said that, they're probably a bit more patriotic in a sense than people in the big cities might be. And so, so I think it's not so much that it's an identity crisis as just that as is happening in a number of other countries in the world, there are these culture wars popping up all over the place and politicians can use them for, to their advantage. And apart from culture wars, uh, Britain has a new culture secretary. She's not a big fan of the BBC, sure she's not. Nadine Dorries, uh, who is from Liverpool, Irish uh, extraction, and she's a very successful novelist. She uh, writes these novels, which are mostly kind of sold on Kindle or whatever, but they are hugely successful, hundreds of thousands of copies. And these are set sometimes in this sort of Liverpool Catholic uh, environment uh, with this sort of Irish influence. Anyway, Nadine Dorries, again, she's been in Parliament since uh, 2005, and she has always been an ally of Boris Johnson's. Very right wing. She opposed same sex marriage. She is somebody who has, uh, you know, a long history of attacking the BBC. But she is somebody who uh, remained very loyal to him. She also, by the way, was uh, disciplined once because she went off to take part in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And she didn't bother telling the party whips that she wouldn't be available to vote. So she, she was disciplined for that. The public have decided the first person they want to leave I'm a Celebrity 2012 is. Nadine. So she's been uh, a junior minister for mental health uh, over the last uh, couple of years and has apparently performed reasonably well in that role. The role she's in now, though, the culture secretary, because it's responsible for the BBC, uh, also for kind of digital online safety. It's, you know, it's a, it's a really very broad brief, uh, but it's a great place to have a culture warrior if you want to start a culture war. So... The fact that they that Boris Johnson has placed her there is a signal. It's a sign that he is heading towards these big cultural conflicts, and he feels as if that's something that will be to his advantage whenever the next election comes by, around. Speaking of the next election, Boris Johnson clearly hopes to keep the Labour voters that swung to him last time by funneling money for infrastructure projects to certain key areas. 
But he also wants to keep traditional Tory voters on side, for example, with the plan for social care that we talked about earlier. Can he really keep both those sides happy? Well, that's, that I think is the difficulty that, you know, he, it, it, so the, the problem is, so for example, if you look at, say, something like housing, if they want to build 300,000 houses, they have to build them somewhere. And many of the places that people want to live in are conservative constituencies. And those people who live there don't want 300,000 houses next to them, or indeed 300 or 30 or three. They want none. And so whatever they're going to do in terms of planning and you know, changing the planning laws is something that is going to be politically very, very delicate. And what you're also finding is that some of these traditional conservative areas, say in the southeast around London, they've changed because a lot of people have moved out of London to these places, these shires, and they've taken their London values with them. And so they don't really feel turned on by the culture war. Many of them voted against Brexit. And so uh, you've seen in the last while they lost a, an important by-election in Cheshire and Amersham to the Liberal Democrats. And what you're seeing is a softening of the Conservative vote around places like Surrey, where they've been losing councillors, uh, again, often to the Liberal Democrats, but also sometimes to the Greens, sometimes to Labour. So they do have to watch themselves there. And at the same time, a lot of these voters who voted for them in the Red Wall last time, they were voting Conservative for the first time. So they're not completely bound to them in terms of their loyalty. So I think they will have a problem keeping both sides happy. And also at the same time, you know, keeping the show on the road in terms of, uh, you know, of the government. Because like all governments, this government in Britain is facing big problems after COVID. They are, you know, they have to fund the, you know, huge waiting lists, how they get rid of, uh, you know, waiting lists in the health service, catching up with education, the kids who have lost out in education because of uh, being taught at home. You know, there are lots of big problems that that weren't there uh, two years ago, as well as all the problems that were. And then there are problems which Brexit brings because Brexit wasn't really, they didn't do it for the economics. They did it for reasons of sovereignty. And how's all that working out? Because we know about the complications Brexit has introduced for businesses, for consumers, for British travellers and for expats. There's a shortage of workers uh, in the UK. HGV drivers are missing. It all seems very shambolic right now. I think one of the reasons that the government can get away with it is that a number of these problems, labour shortages or various other problems, it's not quite clear how much this is to do with covid And how much is it to do with Brexit? So, for example, the furlough scheme here in Britain ends at the end of September. A lot of people, a lot of workers went on furlough. Maybe they went abroad back to where they came from. Some of them may come back. Many of them won't. And so you won't really know until the whole sort of cloud of COVID has lifted what is the extent of the damage and how much of this is actually a problem with Brexit. England has the Fixed Term Parliament Act and that means that a general election isn't really due to take place until I think it's May 2024. But it can take place earlier than that. Do you have a sense of when the next election might be in the UK? Well, the Fixed Term Parliament Act, they're repealing for a start. But anyway, even if they didn't, it didn't really work insofar as if the government is strong enough, they can get their way and have an election. So uh, they can, as you say, run until 2024. The kind of conventional wisdom here is that you go in 2023 and that uh, there seems to be something in the economic cycle that might make it uh, you know, a good moment to go for it. And, and that's what he seems to be preparing for. So that means he's got about two years. It would be usually, it's usually in May. And then it's a question of what can Keir Starmer and Labour do? 
So Keir Starmer, why do you think you're behind the Conservative Party in the opinion polls? Obviously, we've been living through uh, a pandemic um, and I uh, took over as a Labour Party leader 10 months ago. But the argument I'm making today is about the future. Of the Certainly, Keir Starmer, who was hailed as something of a hero and, uh, and he won a big election victory as leader, he was backed by the MPs and by the party members you know, by big margins. He hasn't really made the impact that, that some people hoped. He's been kind of at war with the left of his party. So it's Jeremy Corbyn's a lot of work. behind. No, no, we've got a lot of work to do, but as leader of the Labour Party now, I feel very strongly it's my duty. What he has achieved, in a way, is that that he is a much more acceptable figure to voters than Jeremy Corbyn was. And in terms of policies, he hasn't really done all that much. He hasn't changed that much. It will be interesting to see uh, at the Labour Party conference at the end of this month just exactly what uh, Starmer has to say. He's apparently going to publish a 14,000-word essay setting out what he believes. And then he's also going to make a, a major conference speech. What he hasn't done is if you look at, say, uh, Joe Biden in the United States or Olaf Scholz in uh, Germany, the Social Democratic Party leader, what they both did was they were figures from the right of their party and they had a, a conflict with the left of their party, in, uh, in Biden's case with Bernie Sanders. But after Biden won, he then negotiated with Sanders and he had this policy platform, which was a left-wing policy platform, but with a very reassuring face of this figure of Joe Biden. And the calculation was that the zeitgeist is for more public spending, for fairness, for big projects in terms of building houses, doing things that people used to think were impossible. And so that by being bold about this, it's actually good politics. Olaf Scholz in Germany has done exactly the same thing, where he was uh, at war with the left of his party, and he, again, has done a deal with them, and he's fighting on a kind of a economically populist platform in terms, once again, minimum wages, all the rest. Kirstammer has not yet done that. And so if he's going to continue to go to war with his own party, he's possibly not going to do terribly well. So it may be that the time is going to come quite soon that he better uh, make his peace with his party and, uh, you know, just bury the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn and decide he doesn't have to look over his shoulder and think about him anymore. You know, the, the old cliche is that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And so if it comes to a point where the public just looks at the Boris Johnson's government and says, we just don't want you anymore, and then they look across and they see Keir Starmer, they say, well, OK, you'll do. That's, you know, that might work. Dennis Johnson, as ever, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. In the News, we'll be back on Wednesday.